0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, Eric Flint proves that the past is not gone. It isn't even really past. And this just in. Mortal men are doomed to die. But not before they get to sample the Bane February offerings. So there's some solace there. Shelley and Byron, Ringo and Lee, plus part 46 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Eric Flint, the creator of the Ring of Fire alternate history series slash phenomenon and the author, or co-author, of many other books for Bain and beyond. Out now at Booksellers Everywhere is a leather-bound signed hardcover edition of the book that started the Ring of Fire series 1632, and with it an unparalleled reader community was born that truly participates in the series' creation. I've never seen anything else like it in publishing myself, So this year, we thought it was time that 1632 got the full publishing treatment. Hardcover, leather-bound, signed by Eric, Uh, you know, the works. We'll talk more with Eric about all of this in a moment, but first, here's the news. As the poet said, the brightest hour of unborn spring, through the winter wandering, found it seems the halcyon morn, to hoar February born. And like a prophetess of May, strewed flowers upon the barren way, making the wintry world appear like one on whom thou smilest, dear. I bet you didn't think I'd do that much of it, did ya? But the bane offerings of February bring it out. That was Shelley, by the way. Yep, we have new hardcover and trade paperback offerings at booksellers. These include book two in John Ringo's most excellent science-based zombie series. It's called Black Tide Rising, the series is. And book two is To Sail a Darkling Sea. That kind of sounds like a line from a Percy Bysshe Shelley poem, doesn't it? This is John's answer to the idiotic fatalism of many zombie tales. Also out is the aforementioned 1632 Leatherbound edition. And we have a new trade paperback out from Sharon Lee. Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are the co-creators of the Liaden Universe, by the way, if you don't know, a great science fiction series. Trade paperbacks are those hardcover-sized paperbacks. This one is book two in Sharon's wonder-filled Archer Beach contemporary fantasy series. It's about a woman who owns one of those old amusement park carousels, but this one is a gateway to magic. Book one is Carousel Tides, and this one is called Carousel Sun. Incidentally, we'll have book three of the series out in the fall, and that one will be called Carousel Seas. Now, if you want a taste of this world of Sharon's, you can read the free Sharon Lee short story that's available at Bain.com right now and later on the Bain eBooks site. And also, as always, you can read the first chapters of the book at BaneEbooks.com. To Sail a Darkling Sea, the 1632 signed Leatherbound Edition, and Carousel Sun are now at booksellers everywhere. I'm joined by Bain editor-emeritus Hank Davis, and we want to welcome Eric Flint to the podcast. Hello, Eric. Hi, how are you? Eric Flint's writing career began with the 1997 science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons. Uh, With David Drake, he then collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series and on a couple of books in the general series. That's a series that uh, David Drake and I have revived. I'm just finishing up our second entry called The Savior, by the way. But back to Eric. He's collaborated with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Dave Freer, Katie Wentworth, Reiki Spore. The list just goes on and on. What Eric is best known for, though, is his mammoth alternate history movement i think we call it a movement now the alternate history ring of fire series beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series 1632 published in 2000 and that is what we'd like to talk about now because right now at booksellers everywhere is a 14th anniversary signed hardcover edition of 1632 try saying that three times fast it's leather-bound, and I'm looking at one right now. Brown and gold, frontispiece from the mass market. It's it's fantastic. Eric, can you give us some background on the genesis of 1632? What were you doing and thinking at the time, and, and how did it come about?
2: Well, <laughs> but how it actually came about is kind of uh, interesting, funny in a way. Uh, what happened was that Del Rey approached me, and asked me if I'd do a alternate history novel for them. And I'd have the idea for a long time of, of doing a, uh, a novel using a coal mining town, northern West Virginia, as a collective protagonist, because I had lived there some, many years ago, back in the 70s. And I had just recently, I, for years I'd didn't figure out what the setting would be until i started doing some research for a book that i was going to do with david drake which we've actually never done but i was uh, it involved some aliens and i was trying to figure out a background for him and i thought i'd use the 30 years war as a sort of template now i had not studied the 30 years war in years, so i started reading a book on it and it Dawned no, on I me mean, at that point, this would be the perfect setting.
1: What, that. what year was this about? Did you start it a, a couple of years before 2000 or?
2: Oh, I, yeah, this would have been, oh, I, I'm not sure how old, when the idea germinated, but this would have been, uh, we're talking 1998 probably. Maybe 1999, but I think it's more likely to be late 98. Uh, and, so Del Rey approached me, and I was a little bit hesitant because I didn't want to irritate Jim Bain because, you know, he didn't want to give me my start, and fellas tend not to be real happy if you start moving around too much. But I figured that Jim wouldn't want this story um, because the protagonists were trade unionists, and Jim had never stopped emphasizing to me how right-wing he was. Um, so I figured he wouldn't want the story anyway. Um, so I turned it up as a proposal and I sent it to Delray and then I didn't hear from him for weeks. And after a while I started getting kind of irritated because they'd asked me, you know, I mean, it wasn't like something I'd sent into him unsolicited, but I just didn't hear anything from him. Weeks went by and I asked my agent to check with him and they kept, mm, well, in an on earth stalling around. And I finally got fed up. And I told Shauna, give him one week deadline to say yes or no, and in the meantime, just as a matter of courtesy, let's send it to Jim. He won't want it, but just, you know, just, and then we'll figure out some other publisher. So this was on a Thursday, and Shauna sent the manuscript, the proposal to Jim, and Monday morning, about seven in the morning, he called me. And he said, this is the best idea you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of thinking, oh, God. So I said, well, Tim, can't think you'd want it? Um, and, you know, and I had explained to him that I, you know, first, that I'd sent it to Del right and he still had first dibs on it. Well, he got really mad about it, Excuse me of violating the option clause. And I got kind of mad back and pointed out the many, many times he stressed to me um, how right wing he was and he wasn't gonna publish any kind of tendentious left wing novel and I said, I'm not changing the fact that they're trade unions. To me it's the key to the whole story. And he said, Well yeah, sure, you can't change that. And I said, um, Jim, you're a right wing Republican, you don't like trade unions. And he said, Well, it's different with the coal miners. And we then got it turned out he'd seen some documentaries on the United Mine workers union. He was actually rather favorably inclined toward coal miners. One of the things I, you got to remember, this was a long time ago. I didn't know Jim all that well, and I learned from that experience that as is true of most people, he's a lot more complicated. You know, it's not that easy to pin it all on. But in any event, he did back down some because he had to admit it. How he'd made a big issue out of it. So I said, "Look, I did tell Del Rey, I'd give him another. I think it was till Wednesday. If they come up with something." Then I feel obligated to go with them. If they don't, you get, obviously, the next crack in it. And, um uh, they kept stalling, so come Wednesday, I just told Sean to forget it, just tell them the deal's off, and Jim bought it at that point. So that's how it started. Um Jim was very enthusiastic about that book from the beginning, and he worked, uh, he was very closely involved with it. I did the original research at my end of March in 1999, I remember because I got to West Virginia with a huge snowstorm right at the end of March, which actually worked out to my benefit because they closed the school and the high school principal Paul Donato was willing to show me through the school when it was closed and there was nobody there except two of us all
1: there. So this is, you're talking about the town that you based?
2: town of Mannington, which one of the things I did right from the start was I decided I wanted to use the real town as the template, the model for Grant, for the fictional town of Grantville because I wanted to keep it as realistic as possible. And there's a, a sort of automatic tendency authors have to sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, it it's sort of uh, protagonist creep. Uh, y- y- you know, you have a natural tendency to give your protagonist more than they'd really have just because make it makes make the story easier. So I wanted to give myself a limit. That, And the basic rule I applied then, which we've followed ever since, uh, is that if it's not in the town of Mannington, it doesn't exist in Grantville. There are a few exceptions. The only big one is I moved the power plant, which in the real world is in a nearby town called Grantown. Um, but I moved the power plant to be within the perimeter of the ring of fire because I needed it for the story. But other than that, uh, and then I subtracted some things. Uh, but basically whatever we show in the beginning of that story as, uh, whatever I show as being existing in the town of Granville, you can actually find it in the real town of Mannington. All the way down to, as, you know, as time went on, this series involved a whole lot of other people. We now have a complete inventory of the books that are in the Mannington public libraries and, you know, things like that. So if somebody wants a book, they gotta be able to show that it's actually there. Um
1: Man, you guys have worked out the details.
2: The details are are elaborate. I mean, one of the changes we also made early on after a couple of years of of, uh, when people started writing, you know, which started as fan fiction, but then we started publishing it. Is there Again, you got this kind of, uh, you know, mission creep. Uh, You know, people would write stories and you'd suddenly discover it seemed like there were an incredible number of retired Navy SEALs living in this one little town in West Virginia. And uh, my favorite was one guy had a story he wanted to publish that had ma- uh, three master criminals that were escaping, and they just had me passing through Grandville being pursued by four FBI agents. It was like, oh, come on. <laughs> you had National Guard convoys passing through the town right at the moment the Ring of Fire happened, all kinds of stuff like that. One guy wanted to write a story of an F-16 plane flying right through it. So I said no. No. We're going to keep this reasonably realistic. And what we did at that point, um, Virginia DeMars did it. She used to be the president of, I think it's the American Genealogical Society. It's one of the big genealogical associations. And um, she had some privately developed software that she could use that basically what she did was fed into it the raw data of demographic information from Marion County, West Virginia in the year 2000. Marion County is the county where Grantville is supposed to be located. And so she fed in just raw data, and the program generated an entire town of 3500 people. Um gives you their names, their family affiliations, their religious affiliations, if any, their educational level, their job, their military experience, if any. And so we had a complete populated town of thirty roughly 3,500 people. We call it the grid. And the iron law, which I followed, David Weber followed it, everybody followed it. And the iron law is that if you want to have an uptime American character in your story, you have to pick somebody on the grid. You can't just make something up.
1: Where did the names come from? The, the-
2: it's the David. She She just took, you know, basic... Uh, I think she got it from from, uh, cemetery records, but she just fed in typical last names of the area, typical first names of the area uh the average religious affiliations in the area. You know, that's what I mean by she just fed yeah. in the raw data.
1: So those guys are the uptimers, and that's who you have to use for you have the to use, yeah
2: Now, obviously, we had to grandfather in a bunch. I mean, I had developed all the characters in 1632 before the grid came about, and I think David Weber and I did 1633 before the grid also. And among all the stories in the first Ring of Fire anthology, so those all had to be grandfathered in. But after that, um once the grid was set in place uh, that's the you know absolute rule that you have to use somebody in the grid you can't just make up an up timer we
1: should, we should probably take a step back because i, I didn't say what the what 1632 is about <laughs> which is a, <laughs> it's about 500 pages yeah, it's, it's a long book but it's full of good stuff I, i'm sure that you have a a very succinct way of putting it eric can <laughs> you tell us
2: can put it actually in one sentence uh uh, as a result of a cosmic accident, a small coal mining town in modern West Virginia is sent back in time and in space uh, and arrives in Germany in the year 1631, right in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. And the town people decide to start the American Revolution ahead of schedule. That's basically what the story and all the stories that come after it are about. It's, we're now up to, I lose track, 13 novels, I think. But all of them stem from that basic premise.
1: Now, this, the 1632.org community, uh, is, it's more than, they're not writing fan fiction, they're writing publishable fiction. This has gone way beyond just, uh.
2: It's kind of, yeah, it started as, um, Jim and I decided to try the experiment because we had there was so much fan participation in the book and, and interest that. Um, so we asked people. There was a, a, a conference in Baines Bar devoted to it, and have a very active conference. And so Jim and I discussed the idea of, of um, doing an anthology. In the series, which we did earlier than, it's, it's, it's typical for popular series to start doing anthologies. David Weber's Honorverse does, it, for instance, but usually they don't appear until a number of novels have already come out. We did this one, the first anthology, after only two novels were published, um, so it was unusual in that way. And what we did was we set aside about half the stories were commissioned from established authors. Uh, David Weber was one, uh, Misty Lackey was another, Dave Freer was another, um, but then we set the other half of the book aside and opened it up to submissions from, from anybody, but they were going to be amateurs because the rule was you had to, the submission had to come through the conference in Bays Bar. Can you couldn't just send me a story. So they first had to be posted in, uh, and actually set up new conferences for the purpose, and that's how it's been done. Originally.
1: And they would get critiqued, and, and...
2: Yeah, yeah, it would get critiqued. And
1: they would get better.
2: Right. And it would be out of those that I made the first selection. It would be a close to 100 stories submitted, and I wound up picking about nine. Um, then it has typically remained true that the ratio of stories that we buy compared to those submitted is way higher than it is for most magazines that's because we work with people to get the stories right um, and it's part of the reason we use the way we do it which is you can start writing a story and actually do it in the bar and have you know it, it's not an all or nothing thing where you send a story and it gets accepted or rejected you can sort of keep working on it and eventually if uh, if it looks good enough it used to be me who'd make this decision now it's Paula Goodlett who's the editor of the magazine um,
1: the magazine being Grantville Gazette
2: right yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, what then happened about two years later? This was in two thousand and three, because we kept getting fan fiction being submitted even after the uh, the anthology came out. And so I called Jim and I suggested I you know if he'd be interested in you know doing the experiment of trying a electronic magazine devoted to the series, and and he didn't wanna himself deal with, you know, the work of publishing it, but what he's was willing to do, he lent me $4,000 to get it. It basically meant to a loan to get it off the ground see if we'd get it going, and which it did. It paid him back that money a long time ago. And uh, uh, so I've kept publishing a magazine ever since. Um, the first issue came out in 2003. In May of 2007, we shifted it to a regular Professional publication it comes out on a regular schedule bimonthly. It pays professional rates according to the Science Section Writers Association, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a qualifying venue for a publication if you want to become a member.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and there's some, there's some really serious people that are, uh, with serious qualifications. Yeah, since, reading,
2: and since yeah. as the years have unfolded, is that, uh, most of the co authors, of my co authors who have done novels with me, not all of them, but most of them emerged from within the 1632 community. I'll call it. They, they they emerged as what you can call fan writers, but you know over time they become professional. And some of these people have had several novels come out so far, and some of them started writing stuff that's good. You know, that's not connected to 1632. So. Uh, there have been some uh, established professional writers who've come into the series also. David Webber being the best known by far, but uh, Chuck Gannon and Walter Hunt were both uh, published authors before they started working in the series. Um, I tend to... I, I tend to, as a rule, there are exceptions, but I tend to prefer using fans and teach them how to write just because the, at this point the effort involved in learning that universe is really pretty enormous. And... There aren't that many professional writers, established ones, well, at least good ones, who are going to be willing to put that much work into it anymore. You know, see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, it strikes me as incredibly daunting. To, to no, it is. At time. this there point. You?
2: Uh, Chuck was willing to. Walter was willing to. Um, you know, so there have been a few, but not too many. Uh, mostly the writers who emerge in the series, including the novelists, are... Uh, Our fans, And, and Bain has now published two volumes of the writings of People in this universe that don't that I'm not involved with at all. There's one one by Virginia Mars came in a while ago, and Ivor Cooper's "He's of Fortune" just came out.
1: We just talked to Ivor and had him on the podcast.
2: Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. And if that one does as well as Virginia's does it does well, then I think Tony would be willing to do more of them. So.
1: Well, I can tell you that it is doing well right now. We've been following it uh, excitedly on the uh, on the the bestseller list.
2: Because that I'd like to be keep expanding it so that other participants in the 1632. As it stands now, usually my name has to be honored either as the editor or the co-author of a novel. But, um, you know, when, Virginia's book did well, and if, if I was going to do well, and there's some other prospects down the road. Mm-hmm. We also did recently when, uh, the most recent novel that came out was, uh, 1636, The Devil's Opera, which I co-authored with David Caracol. And the characters in that novel, most of them were based on characters he developed over a number of stories going back for years. And so one of the things that I proposed to Tony and she agreed with, and Bain did, was I think the next month Bain issued an ebook that has all those stories collected in one place. They've been published before in various different issues in a magazine or one of the other Ring of Fire anthologies, but now you can also get them all in one place. And those are all stories written by David. I'm not involved in them. Uh, in November, we're publishing 1636: The Eve Waltz, and many of the characters in that novel, which I'm co-authoring with Gorkhoff and Paula Goodlett, are based on characters that they developed in a number of stories going back for years, all the way back to the very first round.
1: Yeah, the uh, Gorg and uh, Paula are co-authors with you on the Kremlin Games. Kremlin which is, Games, yeah, uh, right. It's one of my favorite of the um, yeah of the series.
2: Yeah, they, uh, and, and actually I'm, uh, started working with them on a sequel to that. Um, anyway, uh, so it's a huge sprawling project by now. There's about approximately 120 authors by now have written something in that series, at least one story. Um, so it's, uh, and the magazine is now up to, I think the 51st issue just coming out. It's probably probably fortunate that Delray didn't uh, pick up your book. So oh, no, I, none I, of this I never regret it because I never Rey, really had you know. the, the, the latitude and freedom of movement at Delray that Del I've had a pain. Um, so I've never regretted it. Um, uh-huh. um, I just, I, in some ways, that was the first fight Jim and I had, and I think it was kind of useful for both of us because it cleared the air a lot. Both learned something about each other, which was helpful, um, and yeah, it all worked out for the best. So I'm not, you know, cramming about anything. But um,
1: well, we're talking about it 14 years later and have it <laughs> leather bound edition. So I think it's it did still work a out print,
2: And it's uh, in fact, this is they're just doing a new hardcover, uh, a special hardcover edition of it. I'm not sure how many. I think it's by now. I know it's over a million. I'm not sure how many copies of the 1632 series are printed and are floating around. but one and
1: two million. Yeah, I think usually for the sales rep, I think now we're up to 1.5 million yeah, as our number. So um, let's talk about the book itself um, for a little bit, since that's what's coming out or is out right now. Um, so in 1632, Mike Stearns uh, and the town of Grantville, West Virginia, suddenly land in the middle of Germany in 1632. Uh, that is in 1632, the novel. They land in 1632, the year. So not long after, Mike and a group of uh, United Mine Workers Association guys come upon a farmer being tortured and a, a woman being raped, and they make short work of the bad guys uh, with their 20th century weapons. Was this seen a representative example of what was going on in the Thirty Years' War?
2: There was, you know, Thirty Years' War was was... To this day, the worst war in European history even worse than either of the two world wars, uh, at least for Central Europe. Um, it's estimated that about 25% of the population of Central Europe died in that war. Um, and it was utterly devastating. I actually based that scene. There is a woodcut called Attack on a Farmer. Sorry about that. I've forgotten the name of the author. But there is an actual woodcut depicting, not exactly the way I did it because I had to change it a little bit to make it work for the novel but but i i based that scene on an actual woodcut um,
1: when did this come to you can you remember was, was the, did it come to you with that scene seeing that woodcut or was it before this
2: i don't honestly remember um i knew that i wanted to you've got an awkward problem as a Novelist when you're starting this kind of story because you need to kick it off pretty quickly, and so readers will usually let you have one not sort much. of not real plausible coincidence to kick a story off. Um, I used to poke fun at at h b Piper's Lord Calvin and Wonderwind because the book starts off with the guy just happens to run across the local princess as she's leading a cavalry charge. And it's like, what are the odds of that happening? Well, I kind of did exactly the same thing at the beginning of 1632 because it's not only the attack on a farm, but right after that the heroin comes charging up in a stagecoach. So you have to be willing to accept some Purely statistically, not very likely, coincidence is happening in order to kick the story
1: off. Yeah, but that gave us Rebecca. We need her. Hey,
2: I know. I know. There's all kinds of reasons to do it, and readers will, you know, it's like, okay, fine, this you know works the story. You can't do it too often, or after a while, readers will start getting cranky. But you can. Usually, especially let you have at the beginning of the story. Um, I don't honestly remember exactly where or how I got any given idea. I knew how I wanted to um, do the general thing. The idea of making Rebecca Jewish was actually proposed by Jim. Um, he's the one who first came up with the idea when he and I were talking about it. And
1: She's a Sephardic.
2: Yes, and well, it, I, I'm the one who then decided to make her Sephardic Jewish because that gave me a whole range of options which were a lot broader than if I made her ask but Jim didn't go that far. He just wanted to, uh, to bring that element into the story. Um, and so that came from him. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, part of what happens in any novel is that you just sort of figure out the unfolding logic of what would make a good story. Um, and... I knew early on that I wanted the character of Gretchen Richter and her brother um but I don't remember exactly
1: when that idea came to me. I know it's in the, one of the first outlines. Um she is such a strong character in the book. I'd like to come back and talk to talk about her. I think one of the main things that that people uh, are struck by is uh what it would be like if, uh, 20th century weapons go up against muzzle loading, uh, single shot muskets, the scene, the first battle scene, it just sticks in your mind. You, you know, they don't just decimate the enemy, uh, they eliminate them entirely.
2: One of the things I've always found amusing is I get a certain number of, of, of critics who, who inform me that, that, that I have a preposterous number of firearms that the, Americans bring back with them and these are people that don't live in rural areas
1: yeah. <laughs> hey,
2: I got the my estimate of the number of firearms and ammunition by interviewing the actual police chief of Mannington, his uh, name's David James he and I spent several hours together and uh, and he's the one who actually came up with uh you know his estimate of you know how many guns are in the area, particularly what struck me which I hadn't realized and worked very well for me was the very high percentage of people do their own reloading, which is something that really is very much a, a, a rural phenomenon. You, you, even people who live in cities who, who who hunt and have weapons tend not to reload themselves, but it's really quite common in the, in a lot of rural areas. And um, I hadn't quite realized that until the police chief told me what his estimate was.
1: So, That's a pretty good skill to have, and if you get thrown, uh, back well, to...
2: no, it's particularly important in this situation because you know they're not going to have access to uh, modern ammunition for a long time. It's not just the firearms; it's also the tactics they were coming up against. The uh, the tactics used by the uh, it's basically based on Spanish Tercio in that first battle, or you know those tactics evolved to fight other, you know, muzzle loading. Primitive muskets at point blank range, and and, and you know, uh, I, I have one of the characters in it is a Vietnam vet that you is know, saying, you know, that the NVA would love these characters.
1: They fight, and I mean, they're they fight the way the American Army fights now. With yeah, taking right. cover, for instance.
2: <laughs> yeah, so if you change the tactics, and, and and part of what happens all through this series is is downtimers adapting and figuring out in fact uh the the book that's coming out in june uh 1636 commander cantrell in the west indies i'm writing with chuck gannon we have actually exactly that same phenomenon the first battle naval battle in that book where the the, in this case it's the spanish come up against naval you know eight-inch naval rifles um are just devastating um but they've got a very capable admiral, and so he figures out how to adapt the tactics, the same way I did in uh, in 1635, the Eastern Front, where the uh, the Polish Hetman uh, Ponik Polski was a great general. You know, he figured out how to deal with airplanes, um, and so a lot of his tactics. It's it's you know it's um, one of the things that we emphasize to New writers who want to get into this series, there, there's a very common pattern. Not of all writers, but quite a few writers come into this, and they tend to be way too. Uh, I don't know what the word is? American centric. Let's put it that way. Uh, so you'll have them writing stories in which the Americans are teaching people how to how to fight. And I remember the first time I saw this, I said, "Wait a minute." Americans are going to teach people in the middle of the 30 years war how to fight? I don't think so. Um they've been fighting already. Yep. <laughs> a level of warfare that no Americans ever lived through, at least not since the Civil War, and that only lasted for a few years.
1: There's a great scene where, um where the high school quarterback challenges McKay <laughs> to uh, <laughs> yeah, a I duel. Really He's lucky uh, yeah, to know, come away it, with his it, life. Okay,
2: it's, it, it's, uh, there are things the Americans can bring to teach him, but there's a lot of things they have to learn too. And, uh, uh, one of my personal favorite scenes is, is very early on when, uh, when Rebecca's father is, is interacting, his first interactions with people, and they begin to realize this man reads and, can speak and read something like nine languages, including Hebrew, Arabic, you know, all the rest of it, and they're kind of staring at him. And Melissa Maley comes in, and when she realizes what's going on, she says, what, did you really think you were smarter than these people?
1: <laughs> I mean, nine languages is a conservative estimate. Of what that,
2: okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Anyway, um, so that first scene, the reason that first battle's there is um, – It serves a whole lot of purpose in the plot. The the single most important one is to get Gretchen and Jeff hooked up. But beyond that, I wanted to make clear to the reader that, that yes, a small town, at least a small town of this nature would be different if it was Beverly Hills, but um, this kind of working-class small town is actually able to defend itself quite effectively. The problem they run into, and this is what the book ends with, is that. But you know, if, if all you're going to do is build yourself up into a little fortress, you're going to have a very distorted kind of life, and so that's why. But you know, the book Mike follows
1: a different political
2: strategy. Yeah. But, that's an,
1: that's important to you, isn't it? You were a you were a union activist, and uh, you don't seem to like royalty very much personally. It comes across that that's maybe the authorial voice speaking there in the well, book.
2: that. I mean, you know, especially you've got to remember now, we're talking for at least a dozen novels in the series, so a lot of times people who've only read 1632 will say, I've had people for instance say that, you know, that's got kind of an anti-Catholic bias. Um, hmm,
0: but, you know, that. there
2: are then three novels that take, deal directly with the Pope, uh, who's portrayed very positively.
1: Well, you have a, you have a wonderful scene between the, the uh, priest of Grantville and the Methodist minister who are good buddies and they fix cars together.
2: Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Where yeah, they're yeah.
1: talking about the situation out there.
2: The thing about uh what I'm trying to get at with the nobility issue is more I mean, insofar and most writers other you know, obviously you have to entertain your readers or you're not gonna be able to keep getting published, but most writers usually have a point to try to make and uh One of the things I want to do with these series is get people to think more than people. People tend not to think about democracy because we've been brought up and raised in it, and you you know, like everything else, tend to take it for granted and not think too much about it. But one of the things I wanted people to really understand is that how radical the notion is that every human being is equal to every other, at least not in terms of what they're able to do, but in terms of their personal value. Which was not an attitude the human race had until very recently.
1: Yeah, you've said this before. I've heard you say that um, the the most conservative American of today would be a would be a crazy radical. At yeah, that.
2: right, radical. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, you can't use left right exactly the same way because politics are different. But but yeah, no, there's no question the most the most conservative. Actually, I, I do use that with. John Simpson and his wife Mary, who are you know very blue blood, um, quite wealthy, uh, you know they don't come from that area; they come from Pittsburgh. Who happen to be just caught up in it, and you know they're basically in American context, they'd be you know very conservative. But you put them in that situation, and and they're not exactly radical, but just their basic attitudes toward people and everything else are going to be uh, shaped by the centuries we've had of, de- of basically democratic egalitarian societies, which, which have a very different attitude toward what, you know, the intrinsic worth of, you know, the, the dignity of the individual is called that, uh, which in most societies in human history until really just last few hundred years, that was only true for a small class of people. Uh, most people did not, were not considered to have that. And the impact that has on the person themselves is awfully damaging.
1: Um, well, your point at the end is that if they don't, if if the uptimers don't interbreed and and intermix with the downtimers, then they're going to create uh, terrible uh, class strat. It's
2: going to wind up being another. That's really the option that's presented, the the choice that that is that is presented to the Americans, really from early on, um, and it the, the key nexus of it originally is when uh, Jeff and Gretchen get married.
1: Well, let's talk about that. Um, Gretchen and Jeff are just, especially Gretchen, they're just wonderful characters. Um, she was, she's kind of the heart um, of the book, I'd say. She was about in the lowest position a woman could be at the when Jeff found her. Um, but she was also kind of a terminator taking care of her family. But uh, can you Tell us how she came to you and how you developed her because she's such a great character. It, it seemed... I don't remember where I originally got the idea
2: for anymore. Um, she's sort of always been there to me in that series. Um, one of the things I try to do with Gretchen, it, it's something I try to do with a completely different character in a different series, which is the character of Victor Gershaw, whom I developed for the the honor, you know, David Weber's Honor Harrington here, is... Because it's a kind of character that is not familiar, by and large, to Americans, um, because of our own history. They are really hardcore, um, and it's not that they don't have any moral principles, because they do, but they don't fit very well within any American mold. Um, because we have a society which has had the luxury of developing for a quarter of a millennia now in relatively easy circumstances. One great exception, of course, was the Civil War, but that you know, one thing didn't last all that long. Um, but we, we tend to prize moderation in politics. I mean, if there's any sort of Built-in bias in the American political system—it's—it's it's, uh, it's this notion of moderation, which would take a long time to discuss. I'm not to go into it. I think there's some really screwy ideas around it. But but Gretchen's not. I mean, she is uh, she has faced a social system and political system that is absolutely horrendous for a lot of people, and she's unforgiving toward. What happens to her as the series progresses is she gets a lot more sophisticated tactically. Um, And one of the things that finally happens, and we're talking like ten novels later in Saxon Uprising, is that um, she's always been a little suspicious of Mike Stearns. And his actions at the end of Saxon Uprising, you know, for the first time, what finally reassures her that the guy's for real. Um... Because to her, he's never been hard enough. He's always been too willing to compromise. And...
1: But she was suspicious of him for being a softy?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's actually something that several other uh, downtimers expressed toward the Americans in general. They like them, they're nice people, but you know, you can't really count on them to, you know, be hard-nosed enough when the push comes to shove, which like Stern says, well, that, you know, has fun poking fun at him, cause he is hard-nosed enough. But, um, yeah, Gretchen's a lot of fun to work with. It's, uh, she's a really, uh, I don't know. It, it's, it's, um, and especially the connection she has with her husband, becomes her husband, Jeff uh, Higgins, who's temperamentally quite different.
1: Uh, and she marries a D&D geek basically yeah, yeah
2: well and then he himself changes as the series you know continues uh, part of the problem i'm having is trying to remember all the way back 1632 because you know that was 14 years ago and and uh, i've written a whole lot since then um but i i know i always had her in my mind um she was the, the two characters i had right from the beginning in my head were mike stearns and gretchen um Rebecca came later. That uh, I had a different idea originally, and um, but um, Jim's the one who came up with that idea, which I liked. Once he proposed it, and um, Jeff developed on me a little bit. Julie Sims actually emerged in the course of writing the novel. I didn't have her in mind when
1: I started. No, oh, she's fun. She's the uptimer cheerleader that is also a crack shot.
2: is to some degree a kind of I don't know how to describe this apology on my part when I was uh, in high school myself I tended to have a kind of snotty attitude toward cheerleaders Um, I was one of the intellectual kids and um, I just consider them kind of stupid you know but then my senior year I was in drama class with, uh, with the head cheerleader was in it and I liked the woman a lot. She was very smart. And I liked her. And, you know, I realized that, that my bias against cheerleaders was mostly just the fact I came from a different background and if you come, you know, in her case I think every woman in her family going back probably 18 generations have been a cheerleader, you know. It was just, she didn't even think about it. It's something she did automatically. Oh. Uh, Many, many years later, my daughter, which went to college, joined a sorority, and that was horrifying. Because <laughs> my generation, damn it, you know, the Greeks were the enemies. Uh, but, you know, people changed. So I thought it was kind of a tip of a hat to someone I haven't seen. In, but
1: uh, It's really cool the way the uh, the women characters blossom in the book. I mean, you have all this great military action. You have... Um, Guys getting mown down by various automatic weapons. But you also have, uh, you know, this social aspect that, that, um, is just as strong. I assume it was important to you to balance the book with
2: Yeah, these. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it was. Um, I very rarely write, occasionally I do, but not very often do I write books that don't have important major female characters in them. And the thing that's, <sighs> I try to do, because I write action novels. And what I think is important to try to do, and I think I'm generally successful, is uh, I, I find sometimes what are called strong female characters aren't really, I don't know how to put it, they're kind of like Amazons. Um, and I don't find them very plausible. So, I, you know, I try to make the female characters not just sort of copies of what a male character be like in that. But at the same time, very capable. Um And by and large, I think I'm successful doing it. But um yeah, it's just, um, I don't know, I, part of just because I grew up around, you know, all the way back, my mother, around, uh, you know, very capable women.
1: Yeah. Um, There's so much drama to be had in the situation where you have women who are quite liberated in their attitudes, thrown back into this time, and women from that time who never considered. Um
2: yeah, and the other thing, too, part of the reason I, I picked the 17th, the 17th century is that people have quite a few misconceptions about it. Um, on the one hand, the it, position of women in the 17th century was actually quite a bit better than it became later. Um because they were still playing a very active role in the production process, and that's usually the key. It was really in a later period that women got constrained into being housewives. Um, and in particular, the 17th century was not—it was not at all Victorian. Um, you know, people were not at all particularly repressed, or uh, it was actually kind of a body period, if you know the truth. Um, and um, so, it's easier in that sense. There's ways in which, I I mean, who knows because you can't do the experiment, but I suspect that women of the early 17th century would have been a lot more similar or adapt easier to modern attitudes about women than would women 200 years later.
1: Well, you do the experiment in the book. I mean, that's what Gretchen does in the book, for instance, and we watch her come through it. It's really a a great process when she comes to understand that this guy is not going to take her on as a concubine. And... Yeah,
2: yeah. Um anyway, that, um those, that relationship, and Gretchen in particular, was, yeah, uh, it was, I don't remember where I came up with it. I think, I, did, I just don't remember I, anymore. I remember exactly what were Mike starts.
1: Well, can you tell us the
2: what... a composite character of, over, you know, I spent many years in the trade union movement. I knew a lot of local trade union leaders, and he's kind of an idealization in the sense of about a half dozen people I knew. I sort of, Combine all their strengths and remove some of their weaknesses, and that's you know you wind up with Mike turns. So in that sense, I think is realistic. Realistic in a sense, this is the type of person they'd be. But within the, that framework, you, you sort of this is the best you can get. Uh, and you've got a lot of characters who sort of meet the occasion. Let's put it that way, or rise to the occasion. Um, and then, the long run even includes John Simpson. Uh, who in the first book in 1632 is kind of the villain, but um, it, it, as anyone knows who's followed the series in later books of the series, he uh, you know he's one of the good guys. Uh, as is his wife.
1: What about the last 14 years? Um, how's it been? <laughs> what what did this do to you as a writer? Well,
2: I mean one of, one of the things that's done is anchored my whole writing career. Um, I mean, as it happens, the majority of what I write is actually probably not alternate history. I'm writing a lot of straight science fiction and fantasy and other stuff, but um, one thing, these books sell better than anything else, and if you want to be a full-time writer, you've got to make a living in it. Um, and it's also been, just as time unfolds, uh, there's a real challenge to shaping a huge series. It's, 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 it's a different challenge than writing a good book. I mean, you know, and one of the things I wanted to avoid, and I think I've done it successfully so far, is long series have a tendency, not always, but it's a risk, that they tend to get kind of stale because it starts getting sort of the same thing over and over again. Um, and I wanted to avoid that, and um, part of the way I've avoided it, of course, is by bringing other co-authors. I really don't try to shape everybody. You know, as anybody knows who's read all the books in the series, a book I write by myself is going to be different from one I write with Dave Weber, and it's going to be different from one I do with Andrew Dennis, and that's going to be different from one I do with Virginia Marsh, and that'll be different from one I do with Greg and Paula, and that'll be different from one I do with David Carrico. I don't try to make them all the same. I, that frustrates some readers, but um, So you're getting a very complex and variegated universe there, which, as much as possible, I'm trying to make that reflect what the real world actually looks like, Um, because it is awfully complicated. Um,
1: So where is it going?
2: uh, I have deliberately, since the beginning, I do not try to figure out more than about two years ahead, I'm talking two years series time, not real time. Um, So, I can tell you pretty much, I'm not going to, but I could tell you pretty much what's going to happen in the year 1637 and parts of 1638. After that, I don't know yet. I like to split the series just keep unfolding and see where it goes. Um, One of the things that's happening, of course, is the story is spreading out and branching out, as it was inevitably going to happen, so that we're now starting to get uh, stories set in the New World. The first full novel will be coming out in June. Um, the people who bought Ivor Cooper's book, he, all of his stories are set in the New World. There's two storylines in there. One involves a Japanese settling in the West Bend, California, and the other involves things happening in South America. Um there, I'm in the process of doing a book with Griff Barber. It involves uh, a mission going to Mughal, India. I'm working with Ivor Cooper on a book he and I have in mind that uh, deals with Ming, China. Uh, like I said, Paul and Gorg and I are going to start working on a sequel to Kremlin games which take place in Russia. So the series spreads out. Uh, meantime, I keep writing the uh, what I think of as the mainline novels. Uh, that mainly means they're the novels that center on Mike Stearns and Rebecca, and Gretchen, and Jeff, and tend to deal with the really big political and military developments. So I, I kind of keep those under my direct control.
1: Well, speaking of those, I realized uh, I skipped a, a question that I'd really, because he's so such a strong character in the book, is is the king of Sweden.
2: Yeah, Gustafsend Olsen. He's
1: a real historical... Uh,
2: he is a real historical character. I try to pattern it after him. Um, He's probably, I think, a little idealized in the first book. Um, not completely out of, you know, recognition of what he was, but, you know, I sort of give you his best side and, then you know, he had his rough edges. Um, in later volumes, I try to give more of a balance of it. Um, but he was a very striking character. His, no doubt.
1: Is the Captain Gar. Uh, thing really true?
2: Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, early in his when he was be, uh, yeah, early in his life he did do that. He traveled around Europe disguised as Captain guard Yeah, um,
1: that that really is like something out of a story. But the king, is. he did do
2: that. Now, how long he did it, I don't know. Um, um, he became king very early. He was 17 when his father died, and he sent the throne. In fact, he had to have a special uh, agreement on the part of the Swedish uh, council to let him take the throne. Oh, uh, And he died quite young. You know, he's only 39 in, in real history when he died at the Battle of Lutzen in 1632. Um, but yeah, he's one of the real... Part of what makes it fun writing in this period is that most people... Unless they know a lot of history, most readers don't really know very much about, you know, the Thirty Years' War, seventeenth-century Europe. Um, but there are a lot of individual people they know or have heard of, because this is a period in which you get Gustavus Adolphus, Galileo is alive, Cardinal Richelieu is alive, Oliver Cromwell's a young man. You know, I mean. It, it, there are a lot of people alive and kicking in this period of history that that a lot of people are, very, are familiar with. I mean, they may not know exactly what they did, but they've heard of them. Um, so it makes for a, a lot of fun working with. Them. And uh, Gustavus Adolphus is one of them. There are others, though. Cardinal Rishi is a fascinating character. Uh, so it's it's a it's a really enjoyable historical period of work.
1: The book is 1632, The Leather Hardcover signed 14th Anniversary Edition by Eric Flint. It's yeah. now at booksellers. Yeah. And they'll go fast. And they will, because there are limited. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, thank you. Yep. Thank you. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. My goodness, we're coming into the homestretch on Shadow of Freedom with only three more sections until we reach the end. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Golpe, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the Talbot Quadrant, a region allied with the Star Kingdom, and on the border of the restive frontier of Solarian space. When Goldpeak receives word that a Sali assault on the Manticoran home system has been utterly destroyed, she decides to take action against the Solarian forces in her sector, and in the process aid the many rebel groups that have sprung up here at the crumbling edge of Empire. With the bulk of her fleet behind her, Henke arrives in the Myers system, heart of the outermost quadrant of Sali space. The Solly Space Forces and Myers are caught off guard, but with their engines hot for training exercises, they may just have a chance to slip Gold Peak's grasp. Gold Peak is just as determined to drive the Sollies back once and for all. Here is Part 46 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: "'What the hell do we do now?' Lorcan Verrocchio demanded harshly. Assuming Thurgood's censor reports are accurate, I don't see that we have a lot of choice, Lorkin. Junyan Hongbo replied tartly from the comm on the sector governor's desk after a brief delay. The bastard could at least try to fight instead of just running away. Why? What possible good could it do? Hongbo asked bluntly. We're talking about 28 ships of the wall, Lorkin, Manti ships of the wall. He shook his head. Their good ships would be toast against anybody's wallers but against Manti's. But he's just running for it, Verrocchio half-wailed. He's abandoning the entire star system. Which is the smartest thing he could possibly do under the circumstances, Hongbo shot back after another of those delays. At least this way the Navy doesn't lose his ships, too. Ferrocchio started to say something else, then stopped, and his eyes narrowed suddenly. Unlike the sector governor, Hongbo wasn't in the capital city of Pine Mountain. For that matter, he wasn't even on the planet of Myers. No, he was aboard Myers-1, the primary freight-handling platform orbiting the planet. Or that was where he was supposed to be, anyway. But if he were on Myers-1, the calm delay should be scarcely noticeable. Where are you, Junyan? Verocchio demanded. Why do you ask? Hongbo responded. Just answer the damned question. Well, as it happens, Hongbo replied after that same brief but discernible delay. I was aboard Wanderlust discussing those shipping arrangements of yours when Commodore Thurgood gave the alarm, "'I'm afraid Captain Herschel was adamant about getting underway immediately, "'and since her impellers happened to be hot at the moment.' "'Hongbo shrugged, and Verocchio's jaw muscles clenched as his teeth ground together. "'Captain Martina Herschel of the merchant vessel Wanderlust "'had been the sector governor's primary conduit "'for the clandestine movement of personal property acquired under "'questionable circumstances for T-years,' Hongbo had had some business of his own aboard Myers-1 this afternoon, so Verrocchio had asked him to drop certain items off with Herschel before her scheduled departure, a departure whose schedule had obviously been moved up substantially. Of course there wasn't time for you to get back aboard the station, he grated after a moment, and Hongbo shrugged again. The captain was very insistent, Lorcan. I see. Verrocchio glared at the vice commissioner, yet even as he did, he knew he would have done precisely the same thing in Hongbo's place. Of course, Hongbo was abandoning a sizable chunk of personal wealth and possessions, but like every other frontier security commissioner or vice commissioner, including Lorcan Verrocchio, he'd squirreled away the majority of his assets elsewhere. And it was unlikely any of his colleagues or superiors were going to fault his conduct in running for it if the opportunity presented itself. It wasn't as if there were anything he could have accomplished by staying, especially if the system's naval defenders had already decided to hightail it. And the final responsibility for what happened here in the Meijer system and in the Madras sector generally was Lorcan Verrocchio's, not his. Have a nice voyage, the sector governor said sarcastically and cut the connection. Bastard he thought, burying his face in his hands. Wonder how much he promised Herschel for his passage. He sat that way for several seconds, then straightened. Unlike Hongbo, he was expected to ride the ship down in flames in a situation like this, or that was what the rulebook said, anyway. But no Solarian sector governor had ever actually found himself in a situation like this before. So when it came down to it, Verrocchio's eyes narrowed. There hadn't been very much hyper-capable shipping in Myers when the sensor platforms picked up the Mantis' arrival, and Thurgood had ordered all of it to get underway and scatter towards the hyper-limit as soon as possible. That was exactly what Wanderlust had done, but two other freighters had been in parking orbit at the same time, and he wondered suddenly if they'd been able to get their impellers online quickly enough to run for it. According to Thurgood, the Mantis were still three hours out, "'assuming they opted for a zero-zero rendezvous with the planet, that was. "'Which they had to be planning on, didn't they? "'But if either of those other two freighters could get their impellers up and running, "'it would be his duty as the Madras sector's governor "'to see to the protection and orderly governance of the rest of the sector, wouldn't it? "'From one of the uncaptured and still defiant star systems like, say, Macintosh?' which just happened to be fifty-plus light-years away from Myers. Of course it would. He reached for his calm again. Sort of reminds you of cockroaches, doesn't it, ma'am? Captain Armstrong remarked, and Michelle Hankey chuckled. Cockroaches were one of the old Terran species which had become as ubiquitous as mankind itself, and she had to admit Armstrong simile fitted. Tenth Fleet, or most of it at any rate, had made its Alpha Translation 73 minutes ago, a half million kilometers outside the hyperlimit, and just over 11 light minutes from the planet of Myers. Since then, her command's closing velocity relative to the planet had risen to 23,576 kps, and she traveled over 53 million kilometers. In just over 27 more minutes, her super-dreadnoughts would be making turnover and beginning their deceleration towards the planet. In the meantime, every hypercapable ship that could get underway had. She wasn't especially surprised to see the Frontier Fleet Detachment running hard for the limit, and she didn't blame Commodore Francis Thurgood one bit. In fact, she'd expected no less out of him. She and Cynthia Lecter had made it their business to study every scrap of information they could dig up on him, and it was obvious he was no Bing or Crandall. She'd been confident he'd recognize his responsibility to rescue whatever he could from the wreck for future service, and given that they'd obviously caught him with hot impeller nodes for some reason, an exercise, perhaps, he was doing precisely what she would have anticipated. Too bad, she thought. Takes a certain degree of moral courage for an officer who knows her duty to cut and run in the face of the enemy. Lots easier for a coward to make that decision, really. He deserves better than what's going to happen. I assume Captain Morgan's staying in touch? she asked now, glancing at Lieutenant Commander Edwards, her calm officer. Yes, ma'am, Edwards acknowledged with an evil grin. Bill Edwards, who'd spent a lot of time at Buweps with Admiral Sonia Hemphill, wasn't exactly a typical communications specialist. He was actually a lot more of a shooter than a technical weenie, and Michelle shook her head at him fondly. Bloodthirsty, aren't you? His grin only grew broader, and she shook her head, then glanced at Commander Adenauer. The dark-haired operations officer had lost a lot of family in the Yawata strike, and it had taken her a long time to regain her lively sense of humor. Indeed, there were shadows behind her eyes even now. It hadn't affected her work, though, and she looked up and raised one eyebrow as she felt her admiral's gaze. Yes, ma'am. What's the latest on those merchies, Dominica? I think just about everyone who's going to get her impellers online before we hit orbit already has, ma'am. The ops officer twitched her head in the direction of the master plot. The only one that's really got a chance to make it across the limit is that first one, the one that bolted the instant they picked us up inbound. Well, I suppose I should say the only one that thinks it's really got a chance to make it across the limit is probably that one. Her lips twitched, and Michelle sighed. Bloodthirsty lunatics. I'm surrounded by bloodthirsty lunatics. In all fairness, ma'am, I don't think lunatics is exactly the right word, Cynthia Lecter said respectfully. Oh, really? And what noun would you choose instead, Cindy? I think enthusiasts would be the best way to describe them, the trim blonde chief of staff replied. Michelle considered the suggestion for a second or two, then nodded. Point taken, she acknowledged, and turned her attention back to the plot once more. Thurgood's battle cruisers had been accelerating away from Myers for 65 minutes, And they hadn't been wasting any time about it. In fact, they were accelerating at almost 4.8 kps squared, their maximum military power, without the inertial compensator safety margin upon which SLN doctrine insisted. As a result, their velocity away from the planet was up to 18,712 kps, and they traveled 36.5 million kilometers. Assuming constant velocities, Thurgood would reach the hyperlimit on the far side of the primary. Twenty-six minutes before Michelle could, "'which meant his battlecruisers would be able to slip away into hyper "'before she brought him into her Mark-16's effective powered envelope. "'She would have been able to get inside her Mark-23's "'much longer powered envelope, however, "'and her SDPs would have made short work of his battlecruisers "'and lighter units under those circumstances. "'It would have required the units she committed to the attack "'to simply overfly the planet without decelerating,' but she had far more firepower than she'd ever need to deal with Myers. The three merchantmen who'd broken away from the planet complicated the situation a bit more, but not enough to do Thurgood any good. They were slower, they'd gotten started later, and even though each of them had headed off in a different direction, her warships had ample acceleration advantage to run them all down. She could have diverted a single destroyer, or even a lack from one of her carriers to deal with each of them, For that matter, she could have sent a massive lax strike screaming after Thurgood and brought him to action long before he reached the hyperlimit. Of course, more people would probably get killed that way before Thurgood formally surrendered what was left of his command, but there was no doubt she could have done it if she'd wanted to. There was a much simpler and more elegant way to do the same job, however. All right, Dominica, she said after a moment. Update the Murchie's course profiles. As soon as she's done that, Bill, she turned back to the communications officer. Pass all the tactical data on to Captain Morgan. Tell him I don't want any of those freighters getting out with news of our arrival. Message from the flag, sir, Commander Frank Yuktomskoy's comm officer announced. Uh? Huh? Yuktomskoy turned his command chair towards HMS Talon's comm section. Our marching orders, I presume? Yes, sir. Latest update on enemy movements and target assignments for the intercepts. Good. Yuktomskoi nodded and looked at his astrogator. In that case, I suppose we should be going, he observed. Thirty-two seconds later, the destroyer disappeared quietly into hyperspace 198.2 million kilometers from the star called Myers. That's it, sir, Captain Wayne said quietly, taking the message board Lieutenant Commander Olaf Lister, Thurgood's communications officer, had just sent to the briefing room. Colonel Trondheims officially surrendered. The Chief of Staff shrugged and handed the board back to the flag bridge yeoman who'd delivered it. He twitched his head at the briefing room door, and the yeoman vanished as Wayne turned back to Thurgood. Not like he had a lot of choice once they dropped into orbit around the planet and demanded his surrender, the Commodore observed. In fact, if I'm surprised by anything, it's that it took that long for the Mantis to find someone to do the surrendering. And that we actually got the chance to run for it, he added mentally, trying to feel grateful for his good fortune. To be honest, he'd never expected the Mantes to simply let him go, not with their acceleration advantage. They could easily have dropped a handful of cruisers into Meyer's orbit and sent everything else after him, and he'd never had any illusions about what would have happened if they had. The fact that they'd opted to simply ignore him and continue on their profile to secure the capital planet had been an enormous relief. Yet there was a part of him which almost resented it. That wasn't the right verb, and he knew it, but it came close. It was as if he and his ships were so sublimely unimportant that the Manti Admiral couldn't even be bothered to send someone to squash them. Francis Thurgood had never been one of those battlefleet idiots, and he'd never felt any particular urge to die for the honor of the flag. The lives of the men and women under his command were far too important to waste doing stupid things. But still, that sensation of being casually brushed aside. Better that than being turned into glowing wreckage, he reminded himself. Not that your career isn't going to get turned into wreckage when old Tara finds out about this. Alonso Yanez will probably realize you did the right thing, but that prick Rajampage sure as hell won't. The civilians are going to be looking for scapegoats, too, and you can bet your bottom credit they aren't going to put any of the blame on Verrocchio. Hell, they'll probably turn him and Hongbo into martyrs. The courageous civilian administrators who stayed at their posts while the military cut and ran on them. Ugh. I suppose we should head back to the flag bridge, he said out loud, pushing back from the table. Wayne and Commander Merriman followed him out of the briefing room, and he tried hard to shake free of the numb dejection which had flowed over him in the last three and three-quarters hours. It had taken the Mantees roughly three hours and twenty minutes to reach Myers, and Trondheim had surrendered the planet to them as soon as they did. No doubt they'd been discussing his options with him throughout their approach. Of course, it had taken another twenty-five minutes for Trondheim's speed message to to overtake Thurgood's fleeing command, which meant he'd been up to a base velocity of almost 79,000 kPS and only 89.6 million kilometers from the hyperlimit and safety when Edgehill received the confirming transmission. Trondheim's career would be going down the toilet, too, he reflected. For that matter, plenty of other careers were going to get turned into mush right along with his before this rat fuck of a war was over but at least his people were going to live to fight another... His thoughts cut off abruptly as an alarm shrilled. Hyperfootprint, Captain McPherson snapped. Multiple hyperfootprints at 000 by 002, range 890.7 million kilometers. Thurgood's breathing seemed to stop as the blood-red icons appeared on the master plot directly ahead of his battlecruisers. How... The range was still the next best thing to five light minutes. It was going to be a while before they had any light-speed sensor results, but Gravitics were FTL, and he watched silently as a pale-faced McPherson leaned over a sensor-rating shoulder, staring at the detailed information from CIC. The ops officer's eyes darted from side to side, absorbing the data, and then she straightened slowly. "'From the impeller signatures, CIC makes it at least six of those big battle cruisers of theirs, sir.' Looks like they've got four heavy cruisers and at least four light cruisers, or maybe those outsized destroyers to back them. I see. Thurgood looked back at her for a moment, then clasped his hands behind him and walked slowly over to the communication section. He paused behind Lieutenant Commander Lister, waiting for what he knew had to come. No wonder they didn't chase us. His mind reflected in the still calm that followed utter disaster. They didn't have to. All they had to do was send somebody back up into hyper to tell the people they'd left there where they had to go to intercept us. And all I managed to do was to build up enough velocity I can't possibly avoid running right into that fucking long-ranged missile basket of theirs.' He felt his jaw muscles ache with the pressure of his clenched teeth and forced himself to relax them. No doubt those fleeing freighters were going to find themselves picked off, too, he thought, which meant Verrocchio and Hongbo weren't going to manage to run out on their mess after all. That was something, at least. "'We have a message request, Commodore,' Lister said quietly. "'It's from a Rear Admiral Overstegan.' I've been expecting it, Olaf, Thorgood replied with a thin smile. I suppose you'd better go ahead and put him through.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 46, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Christopher Ciafani, to Gray Reinhardt, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a universe-creating Big Bang explosion of thanks and unformed natural laws for him to shape at his whim to Eric Flint, creator of the Ring of Fire series and author of 1632. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars...